Eu quero ser um testemunho Remove o erro Please stand by. We'll be streaming live. Please stand by. Good morning, beloved. Welcome to Bible Study Time here with Rick Bonson Ministry. I'm Gene Thomas saying good morning and hello from Virginia. I do hope you all are well and that you had a restful night and that you're out here to maybe give some consideration to the word of the Lord this morning. I know I am. I'm kind of excited about the direction now we've gone forward in our Bible. One book to First Peter and we're going to be looking at some of the verses of that letter or treatise or whatever it is there. We're going to talk about it a little bit today and and uh, get going with a verse here, verses 6 and 7. But I'm going to read it in the, uh, pick up the whole context of it, which means I'm going to start reading around about verse 3 there and read on through the verse 9. And this six and seven, we'll, we'll get right down to it as the main focus of the of the uh, verses there. But uh, l- let me invoke a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we do invoke your presence with us as we study your word. Let that presence be comforting and as always affirming. And positive and hopeful. Help us to learn from this great servant. To manage our lives in an unfearful, Christian sort of way. With the peace that passes all understanding. And Lord, we will be grateful for the progress we might make on our Christian walk. For it is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Well, here we go with a little reading of the text here, coming to you from the Living Bible. At 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Here we go. All honor to God, the Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it is his boundless mercy. That has given us the privilege of being born again. So that we are now members of God's own family. Now we live in the hope of eternal life. Because Christ rose from the dead. And God has reserved for his children the priceless gift of eternal life. It is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, 
beyond the reach of change and decay. And God in his mighty power will make sure that you get there safely to receive it. Because you are trusting in him. It will be yours in that coming last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead. Even though the going is rough for a while down here, these trials are only to test your faith. To see whether or not it is strong and pure. It is being tested as fire tests gold and purifies it. And your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. So, if your faith remains strong after being tried in the test tube of fiery trials, it'll bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day of his return. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though not seeing him, you trust him. And even now, you are happy with the inexpressible joy that comes from heaven itself. And your further reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your soul. And there ends the reading and the lesson from First Peter chapter 1 verse 3 on through verse 9. Let us now begin our focus text in the center there, which is verses 6 and 7. I'll read it to you again. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though the going is rough for a while down here. These trials are only to test your faith to see whether or not it is strong and pure. It is being tested as fire tests gold and purifies it. And your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. For if your faith remains strong, after being tried in the test tube of fiery trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day of his return. There ends the lesson of verses 6 and 7 in the midst of the context we just read. Let me point out a couple of things about the correspondence here that is titled Peter, person 2. Uh, many scholars do not feel that Peter was the direct author of this any more than they felt that Paul was the direct author, perhaps, of Hebrews. We feel this way, a lot of them feel this way because 
we, we were given to know that Peter was not a highly educated man. That's pointed out in in uh, Acts chapter 4, 13. He's rather uneducated and ordinary. He probably spoke maybe one language, and that was Aramaic, which was his tongue. He he probably did not know anything about this Greek that, in terms of being able to write it. Most particularly this style, which is highfalutin big words. Somebody wrote this who had a real high command of the Greek language. So many Protestant theologians think that uh, he may not have written it. However, just like anywhere else in the Bible, his inspiration is behind it. Particularly here, I casually threw around that Protestants did that. Roman Catholics take a little different view of that. They don't want to let go of the keeper of the keys of the kingdom so fast. Peter is remembered to be the first pope in Rome. And they question that looking at Peter in that negative or less than positive sense, may be a big mistake. And so they hold fast to a tradition that, that indicates that perhaps Peter did directly influence somebody who was like a secretary. Salvinius has been selected as, as one. Some of his close associates who knew his thoughts and could write for him just did a secretarial role. Well, I, I wanted to expose you to that because sometimes we just fly into these things saying Peter said this and Peter said that and, and you need to, you need to, I think just, just understand that that may not be the case, that you may be working with something just as magnificent, just as significant, but yet not quite, quite as, uh, precise. So here we are with this, with this text this morning. It's obviously written to a, a community of believers. They are obviously under persecution because there's so much talk of suffering and perseverance, faith, and exaltation, you know, cares and worries and trials all through here. So, maybe they were a community of uh, early Christians who were just going through persecution. Oh, this is roughly the time of Nero, the uh, Caesar of Rome, who burnt the whole place down and blamed it on the Christians. Uh, Nero said the Christians burned it down. The only people hated worse than Jews were Christians in that day. And that Colosseum there was built for the purpose of entertainment, which was ghastly entertainment. Upfront and personal killings. They took those Christians out of different places and took them to that Colosseum and chained them together in all that dirt and mud and flies. And to the sounds of the screaming audience, they were killed in various horrible ways, 
for the purpose of entertainment. And so this kind of treatment was a possibility for these people any minute. They were not sitting up in an air-conditioned church fussing about the potato salad. They were at any minute possibly to be called out, put in jail, and dragged over to that Coliseum where they would suffer. Now, I'm going to mention a few words that's in this text, and you can kind of think about it a little bit. Um, in the verse 6, it starts out by saying, you should be truly glad. <laughs> be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you're going is rough for a while down here. I'll say it is. I'll say it is rough down here. If, if uh, you think that life is a bowl of cherries, why, man, you, you haven't had any experience yet. Because sometimes it gets rough down here. Rough. But he says, right off and be truly glad. You see, these, these early Christians had learned something special from Jesus through the gift of the Holy Ghost. A big part of Holy Ghost power is perseverance and the ability to sustain. In fact, before Christianity, there's a lot of talk about suffering for God because God is righteous. And you get your suffering and that's it. But after that, Jesus, suffering comes, passion emerges. And suffering becomes something sweet and wonderful. That when you experience it, you should be glad. Which means happy. Oh, have have happy. Because even though that going is rough for a while down here. It works itself out in the closing words of the text of 6 and 7, salvation. We have come to believe that salvation is a matter of just Intellectual assent to something. Okay, I, I, I agree that Jesus is Lord. And so, because of that, because of what he said and what, what the Bible says and so forth, it's over. I'm saved, you see. Done deal. But all of life, there's a struggle with that. Salvation, you see, not just according to me, but according to John Wesley, was a, and by the way, that's a, a 18th century cleric that, that a lot of people like to use for a theological professor. We, we kind of drag him to life and say, John Wesley said, well, most people, a lot of people today don't know who John Wesley was or even care. But he initiated a, a kind of a group of people who were like this. 
if you punished them, they'd be happy <laughs> because they felt that it had something to do with the fact that they were saved and that salvation was to be worked on and worked at because salvation was a gift of the Holy Spirit. You didn't just get it because you had faith to get it. You got it because the Holy Ghost power made it possible for you to appropriate what is said to be given to you as salvation. Salvation is not just to be accepted. It's to be appropriated and put to work. You can see salvation in people depend upon whether or not they're working on it. That's a funny thing. It's like working on the road out here. If you work on the road, uh, that's a pretty tough job sometimes. It'd be so tough that places where I grew up as a boy, they would, they would take convicts out of jail and take them down to the road and hook them together with a chain. They called it a chain gang. And the chain gang was used to clean out ditches. That's what they used to do. It'd be, oh, many as 25 or 30 in a chain gang. And they'd be hooked together in the hot summertime. Most of the time they were African American folks, just like in jail now, disproportionately so. And they would be on the side of the road. And I remember as a little boy, I used to think about them when we'd ride by them in the car, you know, and I'd see them out there working. And one day I was in my grandmother's funeral procession. And I was going along the road and sitting on the back seat of the, of the undertaker's car. And my grandma was in, in, in a car behind in a casket and we were rolling down the highway there real slow. And we came up on this chain gang working there, see? And all of a sudden they stopped working. Turned around and one after another of them, one or two of them, not all of them, but one or two of them took off their caps and looked at that body as it went by. They didn't know my grandma, but they knew that they were, had to stop a minute and think a minute. And the guard stopped and thought a minute. As their mortality rolled on down the road, see, see, the, they were working, working, working. You said you had to work off your prison term in those days. Not so too much anymore, but then you had to work to get out, work to get out. And those men were working. And I saw them take their hats off and I saw them stand still. And I said to myself, as we rolled past, I said, those men have got the same God I have. Those men suffering out there in that sunshine got the same God my grandma used to tell me about back there in the casket behind riding along to her grave. So salvation is to be worked on. And a lot of times the work is hard. Sometimes it comes that highly educated, extraordinary people, achievers, miss this. 
when they should accept it or go or get used to the appropriating their salvation, they often just intellectualize it and go on with life. St. Peter, he always comes up as an illustration when you get anywhere near this text, but yes, he was perhaps illiterate. But I say to that big deal, you know some of the best preachers in the old days couldn't read a speck, couldn't write. All they did was sit on the porch and remember, remember things and think about things. And then when you put them in a pulpit, they'd come to life and make the Bible stories personal and wonderful. But you didn't have to be illiterate to do that. But it happens. It happens. It's no boundary that cuts you off from the grace of God based on that. Neither does education. I had a wonderful relative years ago, older man who was a superintendent of schools and a very smart and brilliant man. His name was Martin Diggs. Now, Martin it was just wonderful. His part-time thing was he was a local preacher. And on most Sunday mornings, he would show up at a church somewhere, filling in for some preacher on vacation. And Martin was red-headed and full of fire. And he could preach down, I don't know what all, but he had this fiery red hair. I can see him to this day. Is it, knowledge isn't a barrier either. All I'm, all I'm wanting to suggest to you is that it is wonderful to understand your salvation may not be always worked out yet. So you don't get complacent. So you don't get hard headed when you need to be soft hearted. Verse 7 says, these trials are only to test your faith, to see whether or not it is strong and pure. Did you ever think about the fact that the struggles that happen to you might indeed be a test? It's hard to understand. But when I was a kid, the teacher would, sometimes a history teacher especially, would say, all right, we're going to have an open book test this morning. Take out your pencil and paper and write one through five. Here's number one. Who was the first president of the United States? And we don't know. I don't know who that is. And we write it down. <laughs> but she would, that was her way of teaching. See, we didn't want to fail the test. We didn't know that she was teaching us the whole time she was giving us a test. But that's what is going on in this Bible. Or at least that's the way these people feel about it. They are convinced that going to that Colosseum to die in those chains, being eaten up by dogs or God knows what all, was a test. 
an open book test. They already knew what was waiting for them. They knew what the answer was. They were going to be eaten up or killed. But in the long shot, it's going to secure their salvation with God. So they said they were glad and happy. Well, your test and your trial may be like that. And it takes heat to tell whether there's any good or not. Gold is, is like that. The more you heat to turn on it, the more you can discover what's in it. Because if it gets drippy and you can tell what's in that chemical, if it's pure, then it looks like it and it is. And the same thing is true of, of life. Sometimes you can be surprised what sweat will tell you about somebody. And how good or bad they are. Or how we're working on their salvation. Testing uh, creates a condition in which things are heated up in life. So if your faith remains strong after being tried in the test tube of fiery trials, so it will bring you much praise. The glory and honor on the day of his return. See, these were Maranatha people. We're not so much into that eschatology anymore, but they were Maranatha people. They were looking around every corner to see if Jesus had come back yet. And they were, you know, the, they got sold that by the Middle Ages, they were looking for him to come back. Because times were hard and they were going through trials. And those churches would, were big cathedrals that those people would build in the Middle Ages. Every one of them is laid out east to west. That is, the high altar faces east. The, the back of the church faces west. Doesn't matter what the property line looked like. They put that old church on there and turned it around so that if they were sitting in church on a Sunday morning and Jesus came back, from the eastern sky, they could be the first ones to see it. That's how sure they were that the Lord was going to come back and reward them for their difficult circumstances through which they have had to persevere. Now that's the theological word at us this morning. Persevere. If you've ever seen the movie Josie Wales, you know, Josie, Josie Wales, Clint Eastwood, there's a shoot 'em up western movie, and there's an Indian chief on there who tries to explain to Josie Wales why his circumstances are so bad. That, that old Indian is dead now, but he's, he said, we went to see Abraham Lincoln, and he said, he came out to see us, and we were all dressed up like civilized people. He said, and Lincoln looked at us and said, endeavor to persevere, he said. So he said, the chief said, we went home and we thought about it for a while. Endeavor to persevere. And when we had thought about it long enough, he said, we declared war on the Union. <laughs> Perseverance is a tough thing. John Calvin is a great theologian who initiated that. But 
My time is shot now. I see it's time for me to go. Sorry we got started a little late this morning, but I'm here and you're there, and we're going to get on with life, and we're going to what? Endeavor to persevere today. Might look up that word. It's a wonderful word, and there are many more things to say about this. Many more things. But in the trials of life, remember that you're saved. See, remember that. Remember Queen Elizabeth, who just died, said one time the most important thing that she could possibly do in life is to remain poised and tranquil. <laughs> and by God, she did it for all those years. She remained poised and tranquil. Surely we can do it too, in the light of what God has done for us in Jesus. <laughs> so, folks, I want to bid you farewell, and God bless each and every one of you. I hope to see you soon again. Okay? Bye-bye. Minha alma foi.